speaking on and looking through the, um, through the word of God concerning um, the way that God is with us, whether uh, we are in good times or whether through our lens we're going through bad times. And so because of that, uh, pay careful attention to the words as we sing and then sing along as you desire.
Thanks, guys. Can be seated. My mask back on for some reason. For all of you guys who are over there live streaming, hope all is well with you guys. I think uh, not every week I I uh, openly acknowledge you guys are there, but you guys are there and we know it and we're really happy you're there. Uh, whoever is there, if there's a million of you, which I, I doubt there's a million of you, but for however many of you guys, it is good to see you guys. Hope everything is well with you. Just a couple really quick announcements before we uh, get started. The first is I had mentioned last week and then I'll mention it again. Uh, we are doing a summer retreat in Ashley and the crew are super pumped about uh, planning it for you guys. Um, just in case you guys uh, need to know the dates, it's August 12th to 15th. And so um, the what we're looking for now is for uh, you guys to talk to your parents to get back to me about being able to come. So after Roots tonight, go talk to your parents, give them my email. If you don't know my email, I'll give it to you. Um, so that you guys can talk about to your parents about telling me that you want to come to retreat. We're going to be um, going up and looking at what it looks like and, and figuring out a lot of stuff. But uh, this next week, we're hoping to have as many of the confirmations as we can. Um, the price is $300 is what we're looking at. Um, if money is at all a problem, talk to me right away. Um, we want to be able to help you. We want uh, that not to have to be um, a factor in keeping you away from camp. Uh, and so we want to help you with that. So let me know if there's anything, uh, whether it's financial or anything else that you need to know or need help with, just let me know and we'll uh, definitely cover that. Um, the other thing we want to do uh, as we just pray and open is we want you guys to know that um, we are part of a larger community of the church of for our church, Cornerstone Bible Church. Um, but also in our group in particular, we're a group from the youth ministry of junior high and high school students who I uh, want to come here to enjoy the community God has given us and enjoy that community, not just because we like each other in particular, which I hope you like each other, but we also want to do it because we have union with Christ. And so um, one of the factors of being in a church is when uh, something happens with one of us, um, we believe it happens to all of us because we're a family. And so we care about the burdens of other people. And so because of that, one of the things we want to bring to you is I think a lot of you guys know that uh, uh, Maria uh, Bulis, Noel's sister, um, just kind of went through an injury, um, playing soccer, I think is, is when it happened. Is that right, Noel? Yeah. Okay. So she, she hurt her leg. Um, she had to do, um, a pretty, uh, serious surgery, uh, just a couple days ago, um, in which a metal plate was put around her ankle area and a screw, um, put in. And so because of that, there's a lot of things up in the air in terms of just future plans and, and all sorts of stuff. And so because of that, when we I want to pray for the sermon today. We also want to pray for her. So uh, my encouragement to you guys is um, with something like this, when it's part of our immediate community, don't just let it be something you pray for now. Um, keep it in your head. Pray for her. Um, God hears your prayers. He cares as a father who loves you. And he loves um, our group as people who he has come to save. He had a plan from eternity past to save you. And as we'll learn today, he has a, a good plan for your life, no matter uh, what kind of suffering comes into it. And so because of that, listen to these prayers, pray with me as we pray for Maria and then pray for her on your own sometime tonight, sometime this week, so that the next time you see Maria, the first thing you can tell her is, uh, we've been praying for you. I've been praying for you. Uh, and God is a good God who has a plan for your life, regardless of what happens. Um, and so I want to practice that with you now by um, just bringing that to God and then we'll get into the sermon. So bow your heads with me and we'll, we'll pray. Father, thank you so much for the time that we have today. Thank you for the opportunity we have to read your word and to worship you in hearing it and loving it and wanting to apply it and put it into practice so we may be good servants for your kingdom's sake. Um, Lord, uh, right now we just uh, pray for Maria and we just pray for um, what she is going through right now. It is um, often so frustrating and so aggravating to be put into a situ situation, to put it lightly, in which um, so many future plans and so many things seem to be so different. And because of that, Lord, uh, we want to, um, we pray, just lift her up to you. And we would just pray that 
Um, however you would demonstrate your good plan for uh, Maria's life, that you would do that, whether it is in things going in a different direction in which um, you will reveal how good it is that the direction she will be put into is good and good for her and good for her maturity in Christ and to become more like your son, um, or whether uh, many future plans get to come to fruition through things like healing, through things like um, uh, sensitivity of the pain being taken away in many things, or whether just recovery itself <clears throat> happens appropriately. Whatever it is, Lord, we pray that we would um, help support Maria in prayer. And for Maria, we just pray that you would uh, grant her an ease of mind and ease of conscience, knowing that you are a sovereign God who has good plans for our lives. And so because of that, we pray that we would just bring this to you in such a way that would honor you and love you. And we pray that Maria would do the same and just there would be a peace and comfort knowing that she is in the hands of her everlasting father uh, now and forever, that he has a good plan for her life and he has, uh, you have a good plan for our lives as well. Thank you, Lord, for these things. And we just pray you would keep them in our hearts, that we would apply them in our personal lives as well. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Um, with that. We are now, yes. Totally. Everybody hear that over here? There's a card in the back for, uh, for Maria. So if you guys have time, go inside. There's a couple of cards. So you can sign any one of them, but we're going to be giving them to her. Excellent. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, with that, guys, we are now in the very last message of the second series that I've got to go through with you guys. We started in the minor. Okay, that's okay. That's okay. Thank you. <laughs> no worries. Um, but it has been really cool um, being able to go through so much scripture with you guys. When I first came here with you guys um, in uh, August, we started after after the summer days when we came in, I think, late September, early October, we started the Minor Prophets. And now we're at the end of our series, uh, six messages going through how to defend a Christian worldview uh, to opponents. And there was at least five things we've gone through. And of course, I know that every week we've been uh, summarizing these. And so I know that uh, many of you know them, but we want to keep summarizing them in such a way that they'd be in our heads and not just in our notes, of course, in our notes, but also in our heads that we can apply them and be encouraged by them. And so all the things we've covered so far are supposed to be basic ideas that you can use to then explain or defend the Christian worldview to opponents. And the first thing we learned from 1 Peter 3.13 is that God is good. The heartbeat of every single Christian life is God is good. God is good all the time. When I was a kid in church, we used to sing a song, God is good all the time, all the time God is good. And it's so true. And it's not only good for us who know him, but it is so good in such a way that you can actually explain to unbelievers the way that God has been good to them without them even acknowledging the existence of God. He was good to them in giving them a conscience, a sense of good and evil on some level by which they can navigate life and a goodness in the way that so many societies and in certain ways, uh, our society as well operates on certain principles of good and evil that's after God's heart. The other thing that we learned right after that, though, is, of course, that this world is not perfect. People's consciences are skewed by sin and changed by sin, and our societies as well are corrupted by sin. And the result of that is opposition. The result of that is suffering from people directly. Um, but the second thing that we learned was that God has a plan for us in that suffering. And I'll leave that one there because for obvious reasons in the sermon, we're going to be considering that a little bit deeper as Peter does. And the main way, or at least the main plan that we understand that God has for us in our suffering, partly is to make us like his son, Christ. The third thing that we learned is that we need to consider Christ as holy in our hearts, that he is set apart and separated from sin. He was opposed the way Isaiah 50, uh, 53 predicts him as someone who is despised and rejected by men. Yet, regardless of that opposition, he lived a perfect life. He died. And the confirmation of his good work of salvation com being completely accomplished was him being rose risen from the dead. And that basic understanding of Christ leads to our fourth basic understanding, which is that we have hope. 
because Christ has risen from the dead, we have hope. We have a plan of salvation that God promised in eternity past, revealed even at the beginning of sin in the garden, so that human life would continue in such a way that even though man has no way by their own efforts to be right with God, we can be right with God because God has provided a way for us. That was through Christ. And because of that, we have hope. And all those four things led to the fifth thing that we learned last week, which is we don't need to only understand what we know, but how we share what we know. And the two words that we understood last time from verse 15 and 16 were having uh, an attitude of gentleness and respect. And the consequence of that is having a pure conscience that you have done what you can for the proclamation of the gospel by demonstrating the fact that you are transformed. Those are at least the five things that we learned. And the hope, obviously, in this series is twofold. One is that you can take some of those basic uh, things that we learn to explain a Christian worldview for others. But the other thing, and I hope is obvious, is that I hope that those things are helpful and encouraging for you personally, not just in sharing or explaining those things, but finding those things near and dear to your own hearts. I mean, if you consider the things that we've learned, these are all things that should be deeply encouraging to you. We learn that God is a good God. God has a plan for suffering. God has given us Christ. God has given us hope. And God has transformed us in such a way that we have the assurance that this hope has been given to us. These are all such amazing, wonderful truths. And I hope that as you guys have had discussions in your small groups and as we've unpacked uh, this context of First Peter explaining this to Roman Christians, I hope that those things have been encouraging. And I hope they're encouraging for you because the goal for Peter in his context was to be encouraging to the Roman citizens he was talking to because they desperately needed encouragement. Uh, if you need a reminder of the context we're in, Peter, a real apostle who really knew Christ, who really walked with Christ, who saw and met the risen Christ, who restored him to ministry and sent him to explain the good news throughout the ancient Near Eastern world, that Christ, or that uh, Peter rather, went to explain the beauty of a relationship with Christ to people who were really suffering. And they weren't just people suffering, they were suffering in the center of civilization at that point in the city of Rome, and they were suffering very unjustly. People would come and mock them, people would sometimes even beat them, and many of them even were executed. This is a real letter written to people to give them real encouragement, not only from his heart, but from God himself. Second Peter 3 explains that all scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching. And this is supposed to be profitable for periods that we go through serious suffering when we are opposed by people who are not believers. And the idea of that being encouraging in suffering is so important that even though we've already dealt with this in verse 14, Peter immediately goes back to it in ending this paragraph explaining defending a Christian worldview. So the last part of the series that we're going to go through is verse 17, in which Peter explains one more reason why we should be encouraged in suffering, not encouraged by suffering, but encouraged while we are in suffering. And verse 17 of first Peter chapter three says this, for it is better to suffer for doing good. If that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The final point that Peter is making is he is trying to demonstrate a difference of suffering. Peter is explaining there are two ways that you can suffer in this life. The first way you can suffer in this life is because you've brought suffering on yourself by doing something wrong. Peter says in chapter 2, verse 20 of this, um, of this letter, to paraphrase it, he says, how are people going to understand that you are a Christian if you suffer for doing things that you should be punished for? Peter basically explains that just because you're a Christian and suffering, you need to determine why it is you're suffering. And many times it can be because you've done something to bring on suffering. So for example, it would be ridiculous for a Christian to say, I am being persecuted for the sake of Christ when you went out and you knifed someone's tires. 
And if you get arrested for knifing someone's tires because you got caught and get into prison and you say, I am suffering for Christ's sake, I am being persecuted for the church, that is not true. You are suffering because you decided to go against God's authority and against God's governing authority in the government by doing something objectively wrong. That is something Christians need to constantly ask themselves. Am I in a hardship I have put myself in? Or am I in a hardship genuinely because this life is full of sin and we live in a fallen world? And that's the second way that you could suffer. You could suffer for doing something you can deserve. Or the way that Peter explains it is that you can and you inevitably will suffer in many ways for nothing that you've actually done. Totally outside of your decision to put yourself into trouble, trouble will find you. Jesus Christ himself explained in his last explanation and his last sermon to his disciples says in John 15, 19, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. The world hates you. The world has a recognition that you are a Christian. And when they understand that a Christian will determine judgment upon them, not because they're judging, but because they're demonstrating the judgment of God judicially and rightly against sinners, they will oppose you. They will want to do what they want to do and recognize your citizenship is not in this world. It is in heaven and they will come at you for it. And the way Peter explains that in 1 Peter 4.12 is that we should not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Opposition as a Christian is not surprising. It's not surprising because there are so many things that we are doing that are different and opposed to the way the world is living. They are wanting to live in unrestrained sin, and we believe that that sin is detrimental to their souls. And as we do that in an attitude of love, gentleness, and respect, we are still going to be met with people who want to harm us emotionally, spiritually, or God forbid, physically. But opposition in some way is coming, and we need to understand that even if we don't deserve it in terms of the choices we've determined to make, it is going to come somehow. And that means that we need to determine how we think about that. If God is good, am I outside of his plan for my life when I suffer harm? If bad comes to me, if I'm suffering opposition, have I done something wrong? Am I outside of a good plan that God has for my life? And the reminder that Peter wants to explain to them is, if that happens, you're still on track. If that happens, you're not outside of God's hand. God has a good plan for your life, and he's explained it in two very simple words in verse 17, God's will. God's will, God's desire, God's plan, God's purpose. That is something in which we never fall out of, and it's something by which we need to determine suffering in context of living in a world and having a worldview based on the God who created this world. So I think what we need to determine is what does it mean that we are under God's will? If you want to understand what it means to be in God's will, or that God's will would be done, like uh, Jesus explains us to pray, and we learned with Pastor Josh on Sunday mornings. If you want to understand what it means for God's will to be done, consider the words of Isaiah 46, verse 9 to 11. Isaiah 46, 9 to 11. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I shall accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. This way to understand God's will, the way that Isaiah is explaining it, is called the sovereign will of God. The understanding that God is sovereign, reigning over all, and whatever he determines to do will come to pass. Let me go back and ask you guys a question we've gone through a couple times, and let's say if we can remember it. What four words have we learned that could sum up the entire Bible? What four words describe the whole story of the Bible? God will be glorified. Let's say it together. God will be glorified. Very good. 
God will be glorified is the understanding of the whole Bible because God is starting this process of salvation in which all of creation and many, many sinners will come to glorify God because he is all powerful, all worthy, and we will sing his praises eternally towards that end. If God is to be glorified, he must have the ability and power to make sure that all things work towards him being glorified. Does that make sense? If God will be glorified, then that means we are assuming that he has the power to make sure everything in this world happens towards the end that God will be glorified. God won't just be glorified here. He won't just be glorified here or here. He will be glorified always and in everything. And that means that God's sovereignty is important because it means that God has promised that everything that happens will glorify him. And that is regardless of the choices that people determine to make. Listen to Psalm 135, verse 5 and 6. I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. God has a plan for everything. No matter what section of the earth it is in, God will make sure that it comes back to glorifying him. And this is something that first Peter explains as well. The very second verse of our epistle in first Peter chapter one, verse two, Peter explains that I couldn't even write this letter if it were not for the foreknowledge of God, the father that God determined even before the world was created, not only that everything would happen the way it has happened, but even that Peter would be sitting writing this letter to the Romans. God is involved from the largest things to even the smallest and most personal things. God will be glorified and God is sovereign to make sure that that end will conclude in every single thing that happens in this world. And that brings up a fundamental question, which is the fact that if God is sovereign, do I make any real choices in my life? If God is going to do whatever he wants to do, what's the point of me choosing to do anything? Because anything I choose is just going to happen according to the way God wants it. Isn't that right? And if God determines everything that's going to happen, how can I be responsible for my own decisions? Because everything I do is just following under the sovereignty of God. When people first learn about the sovereignty of God, the assumption that many people have is that God is a kind of puppet master and we are his puppets that are on these strings and everywhere we go and everything we do is simply God moving us like a marionette that we have no autonomy, no free will, no choice to do anything. Is that the way that God's sovereign will is going to be done, that he's just going to do it outside of our choices? Before I give you the answer for that, I want to explain to you that you don't want the alternative to that understanding. You do not want an unsovereign God. You do not want a God who is sitting up there in heaven in which something bad happens. And you can imagine God was turning his back and turns around and says, oh, no, that happened over there and I missed it. I'm sorry. I was, something was here and it distracted me and, and now I see it. My, I'll get it next time. That is not the God that you want. You do not want a God that is not sovereign because if so, you cannot trust that God. If God is not sovereign, you cannot trust God that he has your best things in mind and that he will make sure that you are on his path because he can't control that path. That he is simply a more powerful human. Listen to the words of Jerry Bridges. I read from his book last week. This time I'm reading a quote from his book, Trusting God. This is an excellent book to understand this concept more fully than I can explain in a single sermon. But in that book, Trusting God, Jerry Bridges says this, if God is not sovereign in the decisions and actions of other people as they affect us, then there is a whole major area of our lives where we cannot trust God, where we are left, so to speak, to fend for ourselves. The God explains a sovereign God, and that is the God that we want in our lives. And the good thing that we understand is that God doesn't just randomly have a plan for us in which we don't actually know if he's doing good or harm to us. God is expressly clear in how his sovereignty functions for Christians. 
God is very clear that everything that is happening in your life is for one specific purpose, that God loves you and it's for your good. Many of you already know this verse, but if you don't, this is one of the best verses in all the New Testament to understand this idea. And it's Romans chapter eight, verse 28. If you don't know this verse, you need to memorize this verse so you can trust God more than when you came here today. Romans 8, 28 says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those that are called according to his purpose. God has a good plan for your life. God has a plan in which not just some things or a minimum of things or even a majority of things work for your good. Every single thing that happens for you is for your good. Suffering is inevitable, but suffering is not accidental. Suffering is not something that God turns his back and every time he turns his back on you, you are suffering for it. And not all suffering comes because you deserved to suffer. Rather, God has a plan in which suffering plays a role. And for First Peter, he is explaining that the specific suffering of someone opposing your worldview and wishing harm on you. And that kind of harm, like we said, could be spiritual, emotional, or physical, whatever harm they want to do for you. They are making their decisions, but God is making the ultimate decisions. This is the factor that can be so confusing in understanding the Bible, but it is very clear that two things exist. Man makes decisions, and man can make evil decisions that affect us for worse. Man can make sinful decisions in which we get hurt, but God is making the ultimate decisions by which anything that is happening is still under his sovereign will, and it is being used for our good. Man is responsible for every evil thing that they choose to do, but God is using all of it in such a way that you can trust him that he is working towards your good. That's hard to understand. Let's, let's look at this specifically in the narrative of someone who really existed, someone who understood this experientially in their own life. The very last chapters of Genesis. We've gone from the beginning of the universe to the flood in Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob's 11th son, Joseph. And a large chunk of the last part of Genesis is about Joseph. Joseph seemingly did not do anything to deserve suffering, but Joseph as a young man found himself in a position where because of the jealousy of his brothers that he was the favorite son of their father, Jacob, Joseph's older brothers threw him into a pit and subsequently sold him off to be a slave in Egypt. The Bible does not explain any reason that Joseph deserved this, but it happened nonetheless. Now, there seems to be a glimmer of hope for Joseph because even as a slave in Egypt, he goes through a process in which through his faithfulness and working diligently and faithfully to his new master, he seems to work up in the ranks and it seems that there might be some hope for him. But then suffering hits him again in which his new master's wife unjustly accuses him of sin and gets him thrown in jail. Joseph has suffered for a majority of his life at this point. But regardless of that situation, Joseph remained faithful. Joseph had two things in which he used for God's glory. One was an understanding that God is good and that God is sovereign. And he understood that there was a plan for his life regardless of the mess he was in. And the second thing that he had was a particular gift that God had given him, which was the gift to interpret dreams. And so even in prison, he determined to use this gift as God sovereignly gave him opportunities to interpret dreams for God's glory. And he used that gift faithfully and spoke the words that God would have had him speak so that only the course of what seems to be a very short amount of time, Joseph goes from languishing and perishing and suffering in a prison to very quickly being the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. The Bible explains why he was put in that position, which is that through Joseph's new position and power, he comes up with a plan that saves Egypt and Israel from famine. And so God has revealed that he has used all these things for good. And following that story, 
Joseph eventually meets his brothers again. And after putting them through a series of tests to determine if they're still guilty for the sin they've committed against him, he subsequently, in a beautiful, emotional display of forgiveness, forgives them. And the family is reconciled. They come to Egypt and Joseph once again reconciles with his father. And that could be happily ever after. We end up having a couple more chapters after that. And in those following chapters, Joseph's father dies. He dies at a good old age and is buried there in Egypt. But after he dies, Joseph's brothers get super paranoid. And they start to think about their future. And as they begin worrying about their future, they consider maybe Joseph hasn't got over what we've done to him. I know everything worked out. But at the same time, maybe he was just good to us because our dad was still alive and he didn't want to break our dad's heart by punishing us. So he waited until dad died. And now that he's dead, he's going to come to us and punish us just like we deserve. And because of that fear, they go to their brother Joseph and they fall on their faces and they ask him again for forgiveness. And in that scene of fear and trembling for the legitimate guilt that they should have over doing this to their brother, their brother Joseph says this to them. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 19 and 20, again, an amazing portrait of God's faithfulness amidst human sin Joseph says this to his brothers, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph recognizes that in all his suffering, two things are at play. One is that man, his brothers, had determined to do wicked things against them, being consumed in their jealousy. But at the exact same time, God allowed that to happen. He allowed them to make those sinful human choices because God had a better plan over it all. And even though Joseph saw the result of that good plan, that he would save millions of people, most likely, from famine, Joseph believed that even if that didn't happen, even if he never saw the fruition of being faithful to God until he died and saw him face to face, he knew that whatever happened, God had his best in mind. Not his most comfortable life, not his most unagonizing life, not even his happiest life, but his best life in terms of staying faithful to the God whom he would have a relationship with for eternity. And that good plan could never be destroyed, though men make huge, terrible decisions against him. That kind of same faithfulness is described years and years later, in the same period that we finished in the Minor Prophets in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, erects a massive golden tower in his image that all of the people would worship. Nebuchadnezzar wanted all of Babylon to worship him as a god, and three men determined that they could not do that. Their names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and if you grow up with VeggieTales, you will know them as an asparagus, a cucumber, and a tomato. Regardless of seeing the VeggieTales version, these were real men who were in a real predicament in which they were threatened with death if they did not turn into idolaters. The king of Babylon tells them, if you do not bow down to this golden idol, I will throw you in a fiery furnace and you will die a painful death. And these three men responded in this way in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O oh king. And then listen to these words very carefully. But if not, but if he doesn't, be it known to you, O oh king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. God's sovereign plan for our good will never be disrupted, but that doesn't mean you don't make choices. 
Other people will make choices to sin against you and to hurt you. However, God has still revealed what his plan for your life would be, which is that you would obey him and that you would love him and that you would stay faithful to him. And as you do, you will see that God has sustained you sovereignly in his plan to stay faithful to him, that you would walk past death and into eternity with him. And the result of this situation ended up being a miraculous realization in which these three men were saved from the fiery furnace. But they admit themselves that even if they didn't, they were 100% comfortable with dying painfully. Like so many of hundreds of people in human history who have. And I can guarantee you that every single one of them living in eternity in heaven right now would do the exact same thing again. Because being a Christian is so worth it. No matter the suffering, no matter the amounts of things that come in the way of your relationship with Christ, there is absolutely nothing in which suffering removes it from God's good plan for your life. Suffering will always have a role. Maybe suffering is teaching you the discipline of the Lord to correct your crooked paths like Hebrews 12 explains. Maybe suffering in your life is to make you a faithful example of Christ for the salvation of other people, that you would be an example to other people like Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 1 and 2. Or maybe for a majority of all of your life, you will never in this life know what your suffering was pointing you towards other than faithfulness. Maybe it never gets better, and maybe your attitude is going to respond like the psalmist in Psalm 119.50, in which he says, This is my comfort and my affliction that your promise gives me life. Even if all of your life from this point on is nothing but suffering, it is temporary because the promise that God has given us grants us life and not just life here, but eternal life. That life is worth suffering for. If you are ever in a position to choose between going left and going right in a fork in the road. I beg of you as believers and as a brother of yours in Christ, do not choose the option A or B because this one has less suffering than the other. It is always what is better to demonstrate your love and your worthiness for Christ. And God's good plan to sustain you, to keep you faithful all the way until the end, like the entire book of Hebrews is about. God promises he will keep you on. And because of that, we'll end with this, is that the whole book of 1 Peter is to that end. The whole book of 1 Peter isn't only to explain how you can trust God in suffering, but he actually explains in so many different ways in this book what suffering does for your life. Even if he gave you no explanations for how suffering would impact your life, he still gives reasons. I went through this week just in my own personal devotions to try and bring these things together for you guys. How many times 1 Peter explains the purpose of suffering in his book? And I counted at least 16. And I bet if you guys read the five chapters yourself, it takes about 10 to 15 minutes to read the whole book. I bet you guys would find even more. I think they're even gone at the back, but I wrote it down and put it down on uh, sheets of paper and the small thin ones are supposed to be a kind of bookmark that you can put in your Bible to keep it for later so you can remember these things. But first Peter is a whole book explaining why suffering exists as part of good, God's good plan. Chapter one, verse seven says that suffering proves a test for us to determine if our faith is real or if it's fake. Chapter 1, verse 13 explains that it takes our hope off of ourselves and puts it on to Christ. Chapter 1, verse 23 reminds us that we are perishable in this life, but God has prepared for us bodies and lives that will be imperishable, that will go towards eternity. Chapter 2, verse 12 says that if you are faithful to God in persecution, your example might bring other people to salvation that you would be an example of the faithfulness of Christ, that people would leave the death of sin and walk into eternal life with Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 19 and 21, both explain that through suffering, it enlarges your heart to love Christ even more deeply. In chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, it explains that if you have found yourself previously an unbeliever and married, and you become a believer, 
God might use your faithfulness and suffering to save your spouse who is an unbeliever. Chapter three, verse nine and 10 says, if you suffer evil instead of being evil towards someone who has done wrong to you, that you may understand more fully what peace is and how to pursue peace better. Chapter four, verse one is incredibly blunt and it says you will be armed in a way in which you will cease from sin. Suffering weans you down to a faithful person who sins less because you hate sin. And you, worthy, and you are willing to suffer faithfulness instead of sinning and being comfortable. Chapter 4, verse 13, as well as looking back at chapter 1, verse 7, says that the more suffering you have, it makes you homesick. The more suffering you have, you know that this life is temporary and you're waiting in anticipation for your own death or for the arrival of Christ. And until then, you have joy in being faithful to him. Chapter 4, verse 14 says, it gives you assurance that you have the Holy Spirit. In chapter 5, 4, it says that through suffering, you receive the crown of life. In chapter 5, verse 6, it says, it humbles you that God is sovereign, and it grows your heart to know that God is a loving father. In chapter 5, verse 9, it says that it grants you a kind of love and care for missionaries out in the world who are suffering, and you start to understand empathetically the love that you should have for them. And because the understanding that this world is temporary is so important to Peter, he ends the whole book in chapter 5, verse 10, by reminding us, that our eternal kingdom is great enough to suffer for. That this world is good because God is good, but it is tainted with sin and the eternal kingdom that is coming has no sin because Christ is there. It has no sin because Christ is there. Suffering doesn't always make sense. I can't stand here and tell you that whatever you might suffer, whether it be a person opposing you or whether it be a kind of illness or sickness or an unforeseen tragedy, whatever suffering happens in your life, I can't tell you that in this life, you're going to know why it happened and how it contributed to your good, but it does. God is much too powerful to save you and then leave you be without the power to preserve you through anything and anything that comes at you has been given to you in such a way that you can demonstrate greater faithfulness and greater love for Christ. And it reminds us that the truths that we've covered in 1 Peter chapter 3 from verse 13 to 17, these are truths not only to hold on tightly in our hearts, but they're worth even suffering for. A holy God has determined that sinful, broken, inferior dirty and blemish-filled people might actually be saved, might actually have an eternal relationship with a God who doesn't need us, but he determines that he wants us. And as a result of that, he sends his son Christ, who eternally condescended to us by being fully God and taking on human flesh. And in living a perfect life, he gives to us the life that we need to live perfectly, which we don't. And he dies the perfect death being punished by the father with every sin that we might not be punished. And because of those realities, the perfect righteousness of Christ given to us and our punishment for sin that we deserve being put on Christ. Because of this great exchange, we are then given the ability to walk a still imperfect life, but now being transformed with desire in our heart to want to live faithfully for Christ, and that will go past death and into eternity. The only thing that would ever make a Christian life fearful would be suffering. And God has determined, especially in 1 Peter, that that is a non-issue. Suffering is absolutely nothing under the mighty and good sovereign hand of a father who has given us his will to do fully because we long to be with him and he will strengthen us all the way to the end. Let's pray. Father, what is there to say as imperfect people who 
so often do not love you, which is proved by the actions of sin that we take. What could we possibly say to you that you could turn to good, that we could be right before you? And the answer we know is absolutely nothing. There's nothing we could do to be right with you. But because of the sacrifice of your son and his resurrection, proving that death could not hold him because of him, we might be saved to eternal life. Now we know that we have decisions to make in this life. We must make choices that determine that we wish to be obedient to you. And we know that your word gives us those things. So give us strength to accomplish them. And we know that as we accomplish them, it was under your sovereign will that we would do them in such a way that would honor you. And we would know that you would always ordered our steps that, like you say through your servant Paul in Ephesians, we would walk in the good things that you have already prepared for us. You have determined our faithfulness already, and we pray you would give us the desire to walk in that direction, that we would love you and we would demonstrate Christ to others, that we would have more eternal family because of the union bought through your son Christ. Lord, there's so much to know. There's so much to learn from your scriptures that we may learn to be more obedient and love you more. Please open our hearts to love you more. For those here who do not know you, Lord, we pray that you would remove their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, that they would recognize their desperate need for a savior, a savior that you have sent. Lord, for us who know you, we pray that we would be ready to go out of our ways to demonstrate your love and your kindness and to explain in words the truth of your son, Christ. You are greater than all of our sin and you are better than all of the suffering in this world could throw at us. There is nothing that could separate us from your good and sovereign hand. Let us believe that, that we may walk in the good works that you have prepared for us. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. So with that, guys, I hope that that uh, message was helpful. I hope that this series was helpful. Um, after this, what we're now going through is I think that since we've covered the basics of a Christian worldview in terms of explaining it and holding some of these views personally, the next thing that we want to do for you is go through some of the um, basic understandings of how we know what we know. So we learned the basics of what we are to know, but now we want to know the primary hinge points. And so the way we're going to do that is we're going to go through a five-point uh, series called the solas. Um, the word sola means alone. There are five beliefs that we believe in alone as the only uh, truths that grant us salvation. And it is revealed to us in a particular historical period of time in which uh, many men and women had a understanding of the scriptures and a particular kind of explosion of uh, Christian faith went out across Europe. And as a result of that, just over 500 years ago, we have these particular solid truths, which are not truths they made up, but are all truths that were already here in the Bible, but explained in a new and profound way that was impactful. And so we want to cover those five truths. Those five uh, truths are scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, for God's glory alone. So we want to cover those five truths next, and we'll start that next week. Um, but for now, we're going to um, talk in our small groups today about this message and about uh, all the six messages we've covered so far in, in the basics of a Christian worldview and explaining a Christian worldview. So um, you guys can go off to your groups. Uh, just like normal, you can always go past 930 if you want to, but um, just depending on the time, 845. So if you want to go past 930, you're free. But uh, after that, 930, we'll do a bit of cleanup and then we'll all hang out with each other for the rest of the night. You are dismissed. <laughs>